Petro, whatever you're ready. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back. We're going to continue through our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Romans. If you're looking to kind of catch up on stuff, you can go to sermonaudio.com, to Potsdam Bible Church page, or a website, and capture that. Uh, Dr. Carter's doing an outstanding job taking us through the book of Ecclesiastics, teaching us the importance of guarding our steps when we enter the house of God. Those teachings are also available there, so you can avail yourself to that. This morning we're going to read through, continue through Romans. We're going to read verses 9 through 17 of chapter 1. You can follow along in the overhead, or if you have your personal Bible, you can follow along there too. Then we're going to dig into the text. So Romans 1. Let's look at verses 9 through 17. Again, Paul's writing to this young church in Rome that he had longed to see them. So he penned this letter to them as he was hindered from getting there because of work he still needed to accomplish. So let's see what he wrote. Starting in verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as how to as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I might succeed in coming to you. Verse 11. I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Good verse for why we should be coming to church on Sundays. Verse 13. I don't want you to be ignorant or unaware, brothers, that I often have planned to come to you, and I'd be prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Look at verse 14. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Look at verse 16. Highlight it in your personal Bibles. Underline it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So let's tease this apart. So last week we talked about how Christians are more confused about this idea of God's will and guidance than anything else. And I asked some questions, slide four, to see if that resonated with you. How many times have each of us looked up to heaven and said, What now, God? What do I do now, God? Answer me, God. What, am, what, what now? What, do I, what, am, what am I supposed to do? Sure, none of you all have ever done that, so. So I made the statement last week that your desires and my desires should always come out of our alone time with God. 
This is one way we can be sure that we are following God's desires and not our own. Put up slide five. I also had us tease a little bit of Proverbs chapter two, verses one through five. Here, Solomon's writing this letter to his young son. And we learned about, I'm not going to go into it, we learned about what a conditional clause is. When you see that word, if, that's a conditional clause. My son, if you will receive. Literally, if you will take into possession my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive. Literally, our way of saying that today is, you know what? Listen up. Pay close attention. Pay close attention to wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding. For if you cry out for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, search for her as hidden treasure. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Slide 7. And I had asked us some questions to draw us into that text. Here's some important questions I want you to think about. How would your life and my life be different if our hearts became this inner sanctuary that literally housed the Word of God? What would be different in your life and my life if we put God's Word first? Not giving Him the leftovers a week and being churchy on Sunday, but spending time each day to let God speak His life-giving Zoe Word into our lives. What would be different how, how would our lives be different if our hearts became literally the temple, the naos, for God's word to permanently dwell so that his moral will rules and reigns and governs our lives instead of our flesh? Think about it, church. We have a Bible, and it's one of the most neglected books in the house. But television gets plenty of time. Oh, I'm not going to go there this morning, Dr. Carter. So we learn that Paul lived his life, how? Under the direction and will of God. Paul made decisions in that he would make requests to God first and wait for the Lord to open the door for him to move forward. And we learned that Paul accepted hindrances that would come his way. And we came to see through the text that Paul wouldn't move until he was absolutely sure that what he wanted was in accordance with God's will. And as we learn from the scriptures, Paul would always first submit his request and himself to the will of God. Do you submit your request first to God? Lord, I'm thinking about that new car, but my credit's really bad. Hello? Do we do that? Before we go out and spend money, do we take our time to submit those requests? Lord, is, it, is this something that's going to be honoring to you? Just some things to think about, church. We also learned that Paul desired to come and establish this new young church in Rome. We looked at that word established, very important word, meaning firm, secure, strength, and build up. See, Paul's desire, this gift that he wanted to give them, was the solid, firm, secure doctrines of Scripture to govern their life and that true new young church there. He wanted to teach them church sound doctrine. That's how he wanted to establish them. That's the spiritual gift he wanted to give them. He wanted to build them up in their understanding of the Word of God so they would not be carried away by the false teachings of that day. And that is just as true for you and I today. 
You, there are like some 300 religions born every day in the United States. Amazing. Why am I sharing you with you this morning? This is what I want for each of you in Pottstown Bible Church. And I know Dr. Carter wants it too. Oops, slide eight. So look at this text here. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise, the sophists, and the foolish. There's that word obligation, the word ophiliates, that you can see there. Very important word. So for my part, I'm eager, I'm eager to preach the Eugalion, the gospel, to you also who are in Rome. First thing we need to do is ask yourself this question. Paul, what in the world did you mean when you said that you are under obligation? The Ophelia taste. What does that word obligation mean? Well, in the Greek here, it has the idea of owing a debt, to be indebted. That's the origin of the word. But the word actually goes a little bit beyond just owing a debt. It means a duty that is imposed upon someone or a moral responsibility. See, as Paul is using this text here, this word, I am under obligation, what he's doing, church, he's describing for you and I the idea that he feels compelled and duty-bound to do what God has called him to do, and that is to preach the word of God. That was what he's been obligated to do. So what is he doing? He, he's... Um, He's saying that he's under obligation to preach his gospel. That is his life's work. And he's deeply conscious and focused on that calling. And as we learned before, earlier in Romans, he was set apart to do that. God took him, and that's where we got that word horizon from. Literally, God took him off this, this horizon and put him on a new horizon. Slide 9. So Paul told the church in Corinth this. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. I am compelled, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I think we're getting the sense in the text that that's really important to him. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is it important to you and I? Next he tells us this, that he's willing to preach to both Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. I want you to notice these two different pairings of groups of people here. So we need to ask ourselves this. Who are the people he's talking about, and how did the original hearers and readers of his day really understand what he meant? Normally, Paul would use the word Greeks to really speak of people that are non-believers or, or non-Jewish people, but notice he's using additional words here to suggest a slightly different meaning. Greeks and barbarians. Now the idea of barbarian back in his day is a little bit different than the way we think of it today. Back in his day, that was somebody that was a foreigner or literally an inferior group of people. When they were calling people barbarians, that was somebody that was a foreigner or just somebody that they felt that was below them or beneath them. You gotta remember back in those days, the Greeks of that day really thought of themselves as this more superior, highly educated, very wise people. 
they thought of the Jews as this lower class of people. Isn't it interesting that being prejudiced was just a part of that society back in Paul's day as it is today? And we also need to keep in mind that back in Paul's day, the Romans were pretty much regarded as Greeks because Greeks' philosophy and culture had literally just permeated all throughout Rome and into their culture. So even though Rome may have conquered Greece in a political or military sense, Greece really had conquered Rome. So I believe that Paul had in mind with this statement, doesn't matter what race you are, Jew, non-Jew, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter how educated you are, he wants to preach the gospel. He says to the wise and the foolish, wise meaning sensible, prudent, conveying the idea of people that know how to regulate their walk in life. And foolish, that's the idea of a person that is just sensual and lacks intelligence. So what do we glean, church? How do we, how do we see this? Well, Paul is saying that he's obligated to preach the gospel message to all groups of people. And again, it doesn't matter their nationality, education, position in life. He's ready to share the gospel message to the wisest scholar, those with powerful intellects, as well as the most unlearned, ordinary person that may have no formal education at all. How about you and I? Can we say the same thing? Think about it. When was the last time you led somebody to the Lord? When was the last time that you shared the gospel with somebody? Do you know what the gospel even is? Would you be able to do that? Let's kind of unpack a little bit of that. Slide 10. Look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. That's the harmonton. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The wisest scholar, the most unlearned person, we all fall into that classification. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. Literally, it's missing the mark, falling short of the bullseye. Slide 11. How about this? Well, I'm a good person, Pastor Jack. I'm a good person. How about Romans 3.10? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Paul makes it clear to you and I that anyone who has a soul, he feels obligated to share the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And, then, you know, as I was going through this, I started to ask these questions to myself. Church, do we as Christians, do we feel obligated to do the same thing? Or are we so worried about offending someone? Hear, hear me this morning. Every human being on planet Earth needs the eugalion. They need the gospel. Each of us, church, who have come to a saving faith in Christ and are born again, have an obligation to share the gospel message. And it doesn't matter how smart or unintelligent they are. It doesn't matter what's, what's in their wallet or not in their wallet. Why? Here's the thing. It's the same gospel. Gospel isn't different for anyone. It's the same gospel. And the gospel of God is not regulated by any class of people, education, race. It's for all people, regardless of their nationality or their education. Here's something else we need to understand. 
This is also very important. Some churches really fall short here. The gospel is not some encouragement for self-effort at all. It's not a self-help book. It's not a self-effort thing. The gospel, the EU Galeon, is an announcement of what God has done to save us. It's not a self-help. It's an announcement. There's one common denominator that is for all mankind on earth, and that is that we are all miserable and wretched, hopeless sinners who need Christ. Well, slide 12. I like what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. You were necros. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked, your way of life was according to the course of this world. It was according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul Gives a confession here. He says, listen, we too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. By the way, that word lust is where we get the word pornography from. We indulged in the desires, the epithemia, the strong passions that are sinful in the flesh and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. When I looked at that text, church, I want you to think about indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What are some of the thoughts through your mind? Think about your thought life. If Christ was standing right there and he could talk to you about it, would you be ashamed about some of your thought life? Paul says, listen, we were also children of wrath, even as the rest. We really start to understand how important the gospel is when we start to really understand that we are sinners. We've violated God's law. We are lawbreakers. And everyone was born with a corrupt, sinful nature that we inherited. That progeny has been handed down through all time. Man, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not, is in a state of sin. Sin is anything you and I do that breaks God's law. It's not a popular topic to talk about in church, but sin is anything we do that does not glorify Christ and dishonors him. Think about it. How many of you have the Ten Commandments posted up on the wall of your home? How many of you have memorized them? How many of you know where it's found in the Scriptures? Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Maybe we should go home and go over them and start remembering them. See, Paul wants us to understand the very deep depths of our sin and where you and I would be if Christ had not intervened in our lives. He knew that the law, the Ten Commandments, was something that man was required to obey, but the fall of mankind into sin rendered him powerless to keep it. That's why later on in the New Testament, the law is our tutor. He makes it clear that the law cannot save us. You will never enter into glory by being a good person. It has nothing to do with you being good. Salvation is all God's work and all God's plan. In fact, the law can only condemn us. Why? Because man is under a state of sin. Slide 13. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? Well, I'm glad you asked. How about Romans 8.3? 
for what the namas, the law, could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh. What are the next two words? God did. Not us. God did. Did what? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Boy, if that's not a verse to underline in your Bible and highlight, I don't know what else is. God did. Sending his monogenesis, his own unique son, in the likeness of flesh. So church, the scriptures are very clear in that God is the one who accomplishes the work of salvation in all of our lives. Every person needs the eugalion, the gospel, because everyone will someday have to come face to face with Holy God. Think about for a minute what that's going to be like when you close your eyes here for the last time and you wake up and 2 Corinthians 5.10 is there. We must all appear before the judgment seat of God to give an account of the deeds we did in our body while we were here on earth, whether good or bad. I don't want us to be misled, though. The gospel is not some kind of instruction manual or self-help manual that tells us how to save ourselves. The gospel, and you hear me, you listening around the world, tells us how God himself has provided his own way of salvation for mankind and how he chooses to apply it. It's God's own way of saving men. Think about it. If you and I are a true follower of Christ, if we believe that Christ died in our place for our sins, and if we have surrendered our lives to him, why in the world would we not have something wonderful to share with other people? How does Peter sum it up? Slide 14. 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify. What does that mean? Set apart. Make him the object of your worship. By the way, church is not the object of your worship. The worship team is not. Christ is the object of our worship. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that confidence and trust that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. There it is. It doesn't get any clearer than that, church. It's right there in the text. So the real question for you and I to answer when ourselves this morning is this. Do you, and you listening around the world, do you have that hope? When you drop dead, do you know where you're going to spend eternity. Well, Pastor Jack, I went to church. Doesn't matter. Pastor Jack, I put money in the collection plate. Doesn't matter. Pastor Jack, I was always good to people. Doesn't matter. None of that stuff has anything to do with you coming to saving faith in Christ. Not a drop of it. Only Christ and what he's done and what he's accomplished on your behalf is the only way. And by the way, when you and I die, we don't get a second chance. We're not going to go, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, we're not going to go to a place called purgatory. It is appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. Please understand, sin generates consequences, and when you draw your last breath here, that's it. You're either washed in the blood of Christ, and he's your Lord and Savior, 
or you burn in hell for all eternity. There's no option three. There's no what's behind door number four. There's no multiple choice. That is the gospel church. Look at 1 Peter 3.15. It's right there. You and I need to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope. That's the confidence of trust that is in us. Hopefully you have that hope. Slide 15. I really love how Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones spells it out. <clears throat> Look at this text clearly. There is no way that you can share this hope if you are not a Christian. In fact, if you are not a Christian, then how would you be able to share the gospel with anyone else if you do not believe it yourself? You cannot be a Christian without knowing why you're a Christian in the first place. Church, do you know why you're a Christian if you are? <clears throat> Hear me this morning or listen. In order for you to share this hope, the gospel of God, you must have to know something of this in your own life. You must know and have experience what it is like to rely upon it yourself. So this begs the question that we need to ask. Are we able to give a reason of the hope that is in us to anyone else? When, when you think of what Christ has done for you, do you want to shout it out in a song of praise? Or are some of you embarrassed? I want, to, I want to get serious with you this morning. What is the gospel to you? You see, church, you should be preaching the gospel to yourself every day throughout the day. And the gospel should influence every facet and part of your life. How you conduct yourself, how you speak to people, how you treat others. It should infect every area of your life. It should govern how you respond to people. All of us need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day throughout the day. Paul finishes up verse 15 with, this is why he is eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome. As I said earlier, he felt he was duty-bound. It was his obligation. And he wanted to establish this church in Rome with sound doctrine and principles of Scripture. And he was ready and willing to preach and show them the power of the gospel. It's interesting that there's no fear on his part. <clears throat> Are we fearful to share our faith with other people? Think about it. Are we fearful? Preach. Be honest this morning. Are you scared to share the gospel with other people? Are you scared of what's going to happen to you? It, it seems very clear that Paul had a very deep personal interest in the spiritual development of these young believers in Rome. Do we have that same fear, or I shouldn't say fear, do we have that same intense desire for the people in our church? How about slides 16 and 17? I love these verses here, what Paul says. He says, listen, he, all this stuff he's building up to this part, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, a righteousness of God is, and this is in the present tense, continually revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith, not by good works, by faith. 
right there in the text. Here we come to, I believe, two of the, some of the most important verses in Scripture. They are crucial to the matter of evangelism, church. I love the first statement he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So now, let's ask yourself this question. What does it mean to be ashamed? I'm going to ask you this question like I asked before. 11-year-old kid pulls on your skirt or your coat and says, Hey, I need the working definition of the word ashamed for my class tomorrow. What would be the definition you would give of the word ashamed? Think about it. Because Paul, and we're going to learn something called a litotes in a minute. Paul is talking about he's not ashamed. Think for me a moment. What comes to your mind with shame? Greek word has the idea of humiliation, embarrassment, foolish behavior. You're not able to show your face anywhere. The shame is so bad, I can't show my face. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I'm, I'm looking foolish to people. So Paul's using this thing called a latostase. He's telling what he's not by what he is. It's a figure of speech. You see, instead of Paul saying, I'm proud of the gospel, he's just saying it by saying, I'm not ashamed of it. It's another way of him saying, you know what? I'm glorying in this gospel. He's boasting about it. This should have us all thinking about our own response to sharing the gospel. Slide 18. So are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we ashamed to talk to people about Jesus? Are we embarrassed to share it with others? Do, do we feel foolish to even think about sharing it? Boy, it got quiet in here again, Dr. Carter. There you go. Let's go deeper. If Jesus was standing next to you and you were with your friends or co-workers at work, would you be embarrassed to call him your friend? No. Or would we do what Peter did and deny him three times? No. Out of shame. See, you and I can deny him just by not sharing him with other people. Did you know that? It's just another way of denying him, just by not sharing it with other people. You know, even Timothy may have felt embarrassed at one time. Paul, slide 19, writes in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, Timothy is saying, listen, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be humiliated of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And notice that Paul in verse 7 encourages Timothy to not have fear. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline. Church, honestly, this morning, are we fearful of being rejected? Or are we fearful of being laughed at? I mean, we're in the last days. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. God has not given any of us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and discipline. The question we need to reflect on is this. Why in the world should any true follower of Christ ever be ashamed of the gospel? Maybe the shame comes because the world or our unsafe friends and even our unsafe family members will ridicule us of our faith or curse us out and freak out on us. Maybe we're ashamed because our behavior, we're not living right, we're living a sinful life, so our 
claim to be a Christian doesn't line up with the way we're living, we're not living up to God's way that we're supposed to be, could be that. Maybe that's a time for you to sit there and say, i got to do this repentance, this metanoia. I've been practicing these behaviors, and God says, Thou shalt not do these behaviors, so I need to turn away from these behaviors, and I start to walk in humble obedience with the Lord. You know, your way you live is also a testimony. Here's something else that really blows my mind. Put up slide 20. Did you know that God tells us in his word that he's not ashamed of you and I? He has every right to be ashamed of you and I because of the way we act. And yet, what does the text say? For both he who sets us apart and those who are set apart are all from one father, for which reason he's not, what? What's it say? It's not ashamed to call them brothers. Oh, you need more? How about slide 21? How about Hebrews eleven six? But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is what? Not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. Why is it that we can be ashamed about him, but he's not ashamed about us? Interesting, isn't it? So, if Jesus was standing next to you with your friends or co-workers... Would you be ashamed to call him your friend? If you're truly a believer, the question should cut deep into our hearts. How about slide 22? Paul writing to the church of Corinth. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. So what do we know from our study of Scripture? Let me see if I can round this back. I only have 24 more pages of notes. We'll be out of here by four. No, I'm kidding. We know the Pharisees hated Jesus. We know the Jews despised him. We know the Greeks ridiculed him. I mean, I want you to think about the message itself. Here is this Jewish carpenter born into a life of extreme poverty. He ends up dying on a cross, which back in that day was the ultimate in humiliation and we still call him our Savior. It's interesting that this incredible claim is made by the simplest of people. This Jesus, you say, saves the world by dying helplessly on a cross? Interesting that the world laughs at that. Why, church? You see, the true gospel message is offensive to the natural unsaved man. It's an offense. He hates that message. Think about it. The cross is offensive to people who are dead in their sins and trespasses. They come face to face with the reality that they are condemned, lost, and hopeless, and it hurts them, and it cuts them to the heart. The gospel message produces ridicule and opposition, and people mock the gospel. They make jokes about it, scorn it, the world doesn't praise it. I started thinking about the great men of faith that preceded all of us. How about George Whitfield, for instance? Here's a man that preached back in London. A lot of people don't read these history books of these men, and they can learn a lot from them. 
But see, Whitfield had this weakness in one of the muscles in his eyes, so he would often squint. They ridiculed him for preaching the gospel. How about John and Charles Wesley? Man, they were ridiculed and attacked by their own flesh and blood, their family. Their, their family would say things to them like uh, this. Why must you make such fools of yourselves? Why can't you be like those other preachers, those prosperity doctrine preachers? In fact, their own mother would say to the Wesley boys, you know, you have this mob of common, ignorant people that follow you wherever you go. Your preaching only appeals to them. But what's interesting about Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, they weren't concerned about who was listening. Neither was Paul. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it was good news, and neither were they. So it's important to remember that the gospel message is the most important thing that any human being on planet Earth can and ever will hear. Paul told us back in verse 1, he was put on a different horizon. He was set apart for the gospel of God. He says, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son. And then the second part of verse 16 is, It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about what the word salvation really means? Greek word is soteria. Literally, it means to be rescued, to be saved from something. Hear me this morning, church. We need to understand the gospel is not some, like, yoga. It's not some type of philosophy or some new idea. Paul's message was about salvation, being delivered, being whole, being well with God, being right with God. Paul knew full well that the Greek philosophy that they were following was getting them nowhere. Its set of ideals will not save them. Hear me. We will only be able to understand salvation when we can understand the biblical teaching in regard to fallen men. We need to understand what happened to man as real sin. I'm not going to take you all the way back. You know, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and all humanity fell, the word, world fell. Look at verse slide 23, Romans 5.12. Ask yourself, what am I being saved from? Some people say hell. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all of sin. And again, a little snapshot here back in the Garden of Eden, Adam, before he sinned, lived in perfect harmony with God, church. He enjoyed the companionship and fellowship with God. But Adam and his wife sinned, and as a result, sin enters into the world. Death spreads because of sin, and you and I are born in sin. Slide 24, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from when? Birth. How about Thomas Boston, slide 25? Great theologian. The heart which was made from God's own heart is now a forge of evil imaginations. Is that a true statement, church? 
corruption is ingrained in our hearts, interwoven within our very nature. Our sin is what has separated you and I from God. Now listen, if you've been alive for any length of time, you see for yourself what man does. He falls into sin and he continues to sin. And let's be honest, that's all of us. It's very easy to say that person over there did it. Here's something else that we're not going to like, but you and I sin every day in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives. We even sin in our prayers. So we need to make sure that what, we, what we're being saved from, here's the question. Think about what are you saved from? Some people will say we're saved from hell. Hell's a destination. Let's let the Bible answer that question of what you and I are saved from. Slide 26. Paul writing later on, and we'll study this when we get to chapter 5. Much more than having now been justified or made right with the Father by His blood, Christ's blood, we shall be saved from what? Oh my God, what does it say? The wrath of God. God is saving you and I from Himself. It's right there in the text. We are being soteriathata by the blood. There's your hema. You ever go to the doctor to get blood draw? You get a hematologist. That's where it comes from, the word. It was right there. By his blood. Saved from him. There's the word orge, wrath. That's that anger and passion that is there. There you go. Slide 27. Paul tells this young church in this letter, your paycheck for sin is what, church? But the free gift of God is eternal life in being a good person? No, in Christ Jesus our Lord. This means that we are separated from God forever without salvation. So then salvation means that we are delivered from sin. First, and I'm going to wrap it up. One, we are delivered from the guilt of sin. All of our sin produces guilt. Do you ever have those flashbacks in your mind of things that you did that were really bad when you were younger? And if you're a Christian, you look back and you see some of the things that you did that were bad and you really feel like, like horrible. So first, we're delivered from the guilt of sin because we are all condemned by the law of God. Slide 28. What did James say? For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it. So, we're under the wrath of God. Something had to be done about it. God provided you. Now, you hear me. He provided you and I the very sacrifice that he demanded from you and I through his son, Jesus Christ. Think about it. He's condemned us because of sin, yet because he loves you, he says, I'm going to give you the very sacrifice that's strong enough to wash away every filthy, sinful thing you've ever done, past, present, and future. Because remember, the blood that ran through Jesus Christ's veins was the blood of God. No wonder Paul was not ashamed to preach the good news, that God did something about it. Second thing we see regarding this great salvation, and here's the part that a lot of Christians still don't take advantage of. 
we are delivered from the power of sin. You see, church, it's not that we are just guilty of sinning against holy God. We were under sin's dominion, the dominion of Satan, his evil influence. The, man, the moment man listened to Satan, he lost his freedom. And the third point, we are delivered from the pollution of sin. Slide 29, and I'll finish up here. 2 Peter 1.4. <clears throat> For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. He didn't just say, oh, Jesus promised something. He says he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Pollution meaning corruption. It's interesting, the Greek word there has the idea of being delivered from ruin and decay. This pollution, this decay, is not only in the world. The problem is it's in each of us. People don't like to hear that, but that's the truth. Paul even said in Romans 15, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I want to do, I don't do, O wretched man of God that I am. Pollution. It's what drags us all down. It's what's dragging our world down. It doesn't always have to be done by Satan. So then, salvation is something that delivers us, rescues us from this. The death of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary not only paid our sin debt, it also did something very important. It reconciled us to the Father and restored our communion with Him through Christ. Forgiveness is only the first thing that happens. Please understand that before the fall of man, he had communion with God. So man is not completely restored until he is back in fellowship with God the Father. And finally, salvation is what restores us to the hope of glory. All of us need to be delivered from the wrath and destruction that has come. And make no mistake about it, until a person is saved, that person is an enemy of God, and is under God's wrath. If you have unsaved loved ones, maybe that will change your mind a little bit about getting bold and sharing Christ with them. And lay a slide, slide 30. Two verses again to underline, highlight in your Bible, church. But God demonstrates, exhibits, His own love towards us. Notice that? His own love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been made right with the Father by Christ's blood, we will be delivered from the wrath of God through Christ. So as I close, is that good news to you? Yes. Just think about it. Think about if the ledger of every sinful thing we've ever thought, said, did, from young to where we are right now, and think about it. God the Father takes every drop of all of that sin and he places it on his son, Jesus Christ. Then he takes his son's life of perfect righteousness and he places it on you. We call that theological terms a great exchange. Every sinful thing that's come out of your mouth, thoughts, words, deeds, actions, if you have confessed and repented, he says, I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to place it on Jesus Christ. Boom. 
and he's going to pay for that on the cross by shedding his blood, that perfect life of obedience and righteousness is now going to be credited to your account. Boom. So that when you drop dead, you get ushered into glory in the presence of Christ, not because of anything you could do, but because of what he's already accomplished for you when he died on that cross. That is the gospel right there. My sin that I should pay for is now placed on Jesus Christ. And the life of righteousness that I don't deserve, he's now placed on me. So when the Father sees me, he sees me and you, if you're saved, wrapped in the robes of righteousness of Christ. Here I'm taking you to the Father. I hope that's good news to you. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for the gospel, the Eogaleon, the good news.